Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for Episode 4 on January 14th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Mr. Colin Collins, who is a current advisor to the Air Evac Life Team Board of Directors, along with Seth Myers, the current president and CEO. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 3 and cover some recent air medical transport news. On a personal note, I am taping today's show from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi as I am with my parents following my dad's bypass surgery last week. My sisters Gretchen and Barb and I are playing tag team in assisting with things. I say this because I usually do all the recording for the podcast over a one-day period, and because we had to take my father to the emergency room this past Tuesday, um, in the, right in the middle of our interview portion of the show, it has stretched over a three-day period now. My father is doing just fine, as I just got back with him from the follow-up visit with the surgeon, and he is recovering well. I did hear some feedback from episode three of the podcast regarding the length of my introductions. I understand they can be a a lot longer than what we are used to in a regular news broadcast, but I really want you to get to know the individuals I am interviewing and not just what they are working on or why they're in the news. I have found out things that I would have never learned about people I have known for years by going into their background in much more detail. I have also started a blog about the Eero Podcast Network, or EPN Network, that you can find at blog.eero.com. I am blogging about the different podcasts that I am doing and also providing more detail on the people I am interviewing, so do stop by. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I am putting selected voice messages on the podcast itself, so it is a great way to have your voice heard on the show. As mentioned in Episode 3, I am trying to locate all air medical and critical care transport fan pages on Facebook. If your program or service is not shown in the Favorites Pages tab in the left column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page which is at facebook.com slash airmedicaltoday, please send your pages link to me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com. I would like to be the directory for all Facebook pages so that any program can find and fan fellow air medical uh, and critical care transport providers. 
I did receive a few responses after the last podcast, so do keep them coming. As a pre-warning, this is going to be a long episode, as there's a lot of news, and especially now with the earthquake in Haiti and the continued healthcare reform debate. And my interview of Mr. Collins and Myers is very comprehensive, so I cover not only the history and background of Arabac Life Team, but ask some very pointed questions on their operations. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. First, uh, Haiti's International Airport remained closed to commercial traffic yesterday as U.S. military and humanitarian workers desperately tried to get relief supplies into the nation. Haiti's main airport in Port-au-Prince was left in tatters by the magnitude 7.0 earthquake that struck Tuesday afternoon. The terminal and the airport's control tower were both heavily damaged. The U.S. Air Force 1st Special Operations Wing arrived yesterday to provide air traffic control services and to help with operations on the ground. Federal Aviation Administration airport safety experts are also going to Haiti to assess the damage and to help set up a temporary air traffic facility to assist the military speed the arrival of relief supplies. Similar temporary air traffic centers were set up in New Orleans and other areas after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. U.S. troops began arriving Wednesday by air and by sea, carrying relief dispatched by President Obama. Despite the efforts, the American Red Cross ran out of medical supplies on the ground in Haiti. Several U.S. airlines were gearing up to fly relief supplies into Haiti on behalf of the U.S. government. American Airlines sent three of its American Eagle ATR-72 prop planes, each of which carried 10,000 pounds of supplies. The Association of Air Medical Services reported that Aero Ambulancia from the Dominican Republic has mobilized its fleet of four medically staffed and equipped helicopters to provide service in Haiti. In addition, air medical service providers in the United States have been sending crews into the areas hardest hit by the earthquake, while other air medical operators say they stand by ready to provide services on a per-request basis. Ames, meantime, is asking its member programs to provide specific fixed-wing flights to and from Port-au-Prince in response to a request from the Community Coalition for Haiti in Fairfax, Virginia. In addition, the coalition has requested a medical helicopter or small fixed-wing airplane and a volunteer pilot to shuttle medical personnel and patients between Port-au-Prince and outlying hospitals. With conventional communications either damaged or down, social media connected via cell phone or satellite broadband systems took up the slack immediately after the earthquake on Tuesday and into Wednesday. Land-based phone lines didn't work, but the web-based phone system Skype did, letting family, friends, and news outfits reach survivors in Haiti. In countless instances, the first word from quake-ravaged areas was a post, tweet, or text message. Mere seconds after the quake struck on Tuesday, witnesses were posting the first images on TweetPic, a photo-sharing application on Twitter, Facebook, and on the photo-sharing website Flickr. By midday, YouTube had more than 450 earthquake videos. The source was uh, USA Today, Association of Air Medical Services press release, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and ABC News. 
In healthcare reform, House Democrats said they were concerned that they could lose tough-fought ground on abortion, taxes, immigration, and Medicaid funding as party leaders from both congressional chambers negotiate a final health care overhaul bill. Differences in the way the House and Senate plan to pay for the bill, expand coverage, and restructure the insurance sector have hounded negotiations among party leaders for most of the past week. Top Democrats in the Senate have already warned that there is little wiggle room in negotiations on their side, threatening many House-favored measures. President Obama has stepped up his role in negotiating a final health overhaul package, meeting with House and Senate leaders several times in the past week. After several White House meetings with House leaders and more to come next week, two key Senate chairmen met with the president for almost 90 minutes earlier in the week to discuss a path to melding the two divergent bills together. In his weekly radio and internet address, the president said that health care legislation he anticipates signing this year will have an immediate impact on expanding coverage to the uninsured and requiring insurers to accept customers regardless of pre-existing conditions. Meanwhile, Senator Ben Nelson made a lot of news in the days leading up to the Christmas Eve Senate vote on health care as the final Democratic holdout on the bill. Nelson negotiated key provisions before declaring his support, including getting the federal government to pick up the tab on Nebraska's Medicaid expansion, a deal that came to be known as the Cornhusker kickback. Today, Nelson says he wants all states to get the same deal as Nebraska and that he didn't hold back his vote just to get more money for his state, but to fix the unfunded Medicaid mandate for all states. While the proposition may be more fair, it could make the health care package significantly more expensive. Nelson is referring to a provision in the Senate bill that would raise the income eligibility for Medicaid to 133% of the poverty level, or $14,404 for an individual. Because Medicaid is paid for by both federal and state governments, the new influx of patients would eventually add to state budgets except in Nebraska, where Nelson negotiated for the federal government to pick up 100% of the tab. Nelson was answering criticism from Republican California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who said concessions made to win the senator's crucial vote to pass the Senate reform bill were a ripoff for California, and giving extra Medicaid funds to Nebraska to secure Nelson's vote was like buying a vote. Nelson said in a statement issued Sunday that he agrees with Schwarzenegger that all states should be relieved of this unfunded mandate. The overall cost of the Senate health reform bill would largely be offset by the cuts to Medicare and Medicaid, but the bill also would force more providers to end participation in the federal programs, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, actuaries. The Senate's health reform package, which passed along party lines on December 24th, will cost $882 billion over a 10-year budget window. The lion's share of the cost will come from initiatives to greatly expand health insurance to some 34 million more Americans, the actuaries predict. But the price tag would largely be partially offset by about $541 billion in cuts to Medicare, and another $27 billion by Medicaid, they concluded. Even with the boost in health spending, some providers could see themselves becoming unprofitable. 
A measure in the bill aimed at making doctors and hospitals become more efficient could instead drive a number of them out of the Medicare program, possibly jeopardizing access to the care for beneficiaries. AFL-CIO President Richard Trumpka said that a proposed tax on high-value health plans would miss its intended target, instead hit the middle class and poor the hardest. The Senate's package relies heavily on a 40% excise tax on health coverage that exceeds $8,500 for individuals and nearly three times that much, $23,000 for families. Senate Democrats who authorized the reform bill expect the measure to raise $149 billion of the $871 billion over the next year needed to fully offset the cost of the legislation. The tax has proven unpopular among the nation's unionized workforce, many of whom have negotiated for lower wages in exchange for ironbound health insurance. Trumpka also urged Congress to pass legislation opposed by the hospital lobby that would make it easier for health care workers to organize unions. Overall, U.S. health care spending rose 4.4% in 2008, the government reported last week the smallest increase since tracking began in 1960. Whatever encouragement that offers is offset by three facts. Medicare spending continues to spiral upward at almost an 8% rate. The overall slower growth was due to the most severe economic downturn since the Depression, and America still spent $2.3 trillion on health care in 2008, or about $7,700 per capita. In a story this week, it was reported that the race to succeed the late Senator Edward M. Kennedy has turned into a proxy battle over the fate of the health care overhaul. A once pedestrian contest between Democrat Martha Coakley and Republican Scott Brown has coarsened with a week to go, as the two have cast themselves as custodians of the pivotal Senate vote to determine the bill's faith. While the majority of voters in Massachusetts are unenrolled in either major party, there is little empirical evidence to suggest Coakley will lose the special election. The state has Democratic House and Senate, a Democratic governor, and all six constitutional offices, including Coakley, the Attorney General, are Democrats. In particular, Republicans are hoping a closer-than-expected finish would bolster a claim that Democrats are at risk of losing the congressional majorities. Democrats want to protect the president from embarrassment over health care, which is Obama's top domestic priority. And that source was from Business Week, Modern Healthcare, and USA Today. Beginning March 8th, several types of aviation incidents will require a report to the National Transportation Safety Board. NTSB published a final rule last Thursday amending its reporting requirements, making some changes in the initial language in response to six comments received. The rule will require reports when an aircraft lands or departs on a taxiway or incorrect runway, when an aircraft experiences a runway incursion that requires the operator or the crew of another aircraft or vehicle to make immediate corrective action to avoid the collision, when damage to the helicopter's tail or main rotor blade necessitates major repair or replacement of the blade, and when all or part of a propeller blade separates from an aircraft, except when ground contact is the sole cause. Source was the Occupational Health and Safety Online. A Winnipeg-based 
airline offering air ambulance and chartered flight services is being investigated by Transport Canada for the second time in little more than a year. Winnipeg police, accompanied by Transport Canada investigators, executed a search warrant at the head office of Fast Air this past Monday. The federal regulator wants to find out whether Fast Air is breaking any Canadian flight safety laws, according to a Transport Canada spokesperson. Fast Air, which operates 13 aircraft and employs about 65 people, will retain its license to operate. Transport Canada last inspected Fast Air in March 2009 and found nothing that would affect flight safety. However, about four months later, the agency ordered Fast Air to pay more than $200,000 in fines for 22 counts of violating federal safety regulations. The company failed on 11 occasions to enter defects into aircraft journey logs and failed 11 other times to operate aircraft in compliance with the company's own maintenance control system. Fast Air is appealing that ruling. Dylan Fast, the company's owner and president, was also charged with willfully omitting entries in records. His case remains before Manitoba's provincial court. Fast Air General Manager Ray Snace said Wednesday that the latest visit by investigators to the company's offices was a complete surprise and defended their safety record, saying the company has had no injuries or in-flight accidents in 15 years. The source here is CBC News Canada and CJOB Manitoba. Through a partnership with AnMed Health, MedTrans Corporation is launching a helicopter program called LifeLight to serve northeast Georgia. LifeLight is expected to transport at least 20 patients a month, but over time the volume will grow, according to Tina Jury, AnMed's health chief nursing officer. AnMed Health is the state's largest independent not-for-profit health system with more than 35 patient care sites. The health system is anchored by the 461-bed medical center. MedTrans Corporation, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, is focused on establishing partnerships with leading hospital systems, medical centers, and EMS agencies to provide customized air medical programs through community-based models or traditional hospital-based models. The company has grown from four to 33 programs over the past six years. MedTrans is a subsidiary of Air Medical Group Holdings, a portfolio company of Brockway, Moran and Partners, and Meridian Venture Partners. That source was from Helicopter Association International. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive than the Facebook postings, but the Twitter feed can also be seen on the Facebook page under the RSS slash blog tab. It is delayed, however, due to network issues on Facebook. Today I am interviewing Mr. Colin Collins, an advisor to the board of directors of Aerobac Life Team through his board position with Air Medical Group Holdings, along with Seth Myers, the current president and CEO. Aerobac Life Team is headquartered in West Plains, Missouri, and has operations in 14 states. Colin Collins served as president of Aerobac Life Team from 1997 to 2007. Before joining the company, Mr. Collins served for 10 years as the CEO of Ozarks Medical Center in West Plains. Prior to that, he was a consultant in the healthcare industry. 
Cohen graduated from the University of Missouri with a B.S. in chemistry on a football scholarship. He also received his master's in chemistry and a Ph.D. in biochemistry from Missouri and is an Army veteran. Following graduation, Cohen accepted a research position at Columbia University in New York and then taught chemistry at Southeast Missouri State for 10 years. He started a consulting company for labs and dietary departments for small rural hospitals where he grew the company to 15 employees covering six states. During that time, he also became a pilot so as to cover his company's service area more efficiently. Since Colin had worked with Ozark's medical center, he knew many of the board members and had also wanted to cut back on his very busy travel schedule, so was hired as the hospital's CEO in 1983 and served for 10 years in that position. During his tenure, the medical staff grew from 14 to 53, Three additions were added onto the hospital. The first rural health clinics in Missouri and Arkansas were started. A two-year RN program with Southeast Missouri State began, and he helped start Aravac in 1985. Colin left the hospital in 1993 to go into a family business making oak dining room furniture and then became CEO of Aravac in 1997 after selling the business. He stepped down in January 2008 to become CEO or the chairman type role, and then in January 2009 to his role as advisor to the board through a position with Air Medical Group Holdings. In January 2009, Colin also expanded the family farming operation where he lives with his wife, Leslie, in a rural area near Sycamore, Missouri. Seth Myers has served as president of Aravac Life Team since January 2008 and then as president and CEO since January 2009. Before being named president, Seth served as Aravac's VP of Operations from 2003. Prior to Aravac, he served as the chief operating officer of MedServe International and a senior associate for Fitch & Associates. He began his air medical career as a flight nurse for Shands Care at the University of Florida, where he later served as program director. Prior to Shands Care, he worked in the Army's only trauma unit in El Paso, Texas in the late 1970s, where he did research with Dr. Crowley's team at the shock trauma unit in Baltimore, Maryland. He specifically was asked to teach the medics on the mass dust-off units to intubate and start IVs in an attempt to improve outcomes based on research. Seth also served on the board of the Association of Aeromedical Services from 1998 through 2003. He grew up in Midwest Missouri and Iowa, attending high school and college in rural areas. His bachelor's degree in nursing is from Luther College and his MBA from Jacksonville University. Seth has lived in West Plains for seven years with his wife, Denver. They have four grown children and six grandchildren. Welcome, Colin and Seth, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Ed. This is Colin from the uh, frozen uh, banks of Bryan Creek over here in Missouri, but it's a, uh, been quite a winter, but I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Great. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, drove down to uh, be with my uh, parents. My dad uh, had a uh, 
second bypass operation, first one about six years ago, and I was driving down, came down through 71 and through rural Missouri, then down through Arkansas. When I was south of Kansas City, I believe it was minus 11 degrees. So, it, uh, But it is warming up now again, so I hope you're getting the warm-up too. Yeah, we are. We're finally above freezing for a little while. Uh, Colin, I know you were serving as the CEO of Ozarks Medical Center in 1985 when you helped start AeroVac. How did the idea to put an air ambulance in West Plains come about, and who all was behind this effort? Sure, uh, that's uh, that's a great question. <laughs> and if, in, in actuality, uh, the very first time I heard about the, the concept, uh, I had... Uh, uh, two uh, friends of mine uh, come to my office and say, we, we believe that we need an air ambulance here in, in southern Missouri. One was a, a Vietnam, uh, ex-Vietnam uh, uh, helicopter pilot, and the other was, uh, was a friend whose father was literally dying, uh, and, and he was having a terrible time. Getting getting his father to the the type of care that he felt like he needed he needed to have on a, on a, a relatively episodic basis and so they sat with me and and uh, asked uh, could the hospital um, put an air ambulance in because uh, they knew it would uh, save lives and would be a tremendous help um, I obviously uh, agreed that it was it would it was something that we desperately needed in our part of the world. But at the same time, I had to say to them there was just really no way that uh, economically uh, that the hospital could could uh, even uh, even think about trying to subsidize an air ambulance service in a very small rural community like West Plains. And, and the hospital at that time was how many beds? We had right at a, a hundred beds. Uh, this is uh, right after, for those of you all that are as old as I am, right after DRGs got started in the. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the hospital business, and uh, we were we were hand to mouth at best. Um, in a uh, this West Plains sits uh, in a county that's surrounded by five of the of the of the most of the poorest counties in Missouri. Five of the ten poorest are right here, and so obviously our pair mix and and issues associated with uh, with financing a hospital here were were really difficult. At, at the time, were you being served by other? Air ambulance programs? Well, no, the answer is no. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, the uh, and and that's that's in the eye of the beholder. I would suspect if you were to talk to the to the folks who were running staff for life up at the University of Missouri, which was 200 miles away, they would say yes. We we would we we could come down to uh, West Plains. And if you talk to the folks over at uh, at Hammond's Lifeline, that had just actually really hadn't started, but was in the process of starting at that point in time. And they were 120 miles away. They would have said that uh, we would service and we would fly to your hospital, but but that's really not service. So we didn't have anybody. When you started in envisioning this program, did you look at other air medical programs uh, that were operating in the United States and use that as a model? for your information, or did you go outside the box? Uh, well, um, actually, the first the first contacts were, were with uh, the Staff for Life, my old alma mater up at the University of Missouri, and, uh, and talked with Dr. Mitchell, who was the, uh, the medical director for, 
for that that program and uh, their their response basically was is that there was no way that we could we should even contemplate putting an air ambulance in in this remote an area um, and uh, we pretty much uh, <clears throat> backed away and tried to tried to think through how we how we might be able to to financially get this done since uh, no one was willing to really uh, our hope was and maybe they would put a helicopter here but that was not a not an option mm-hmm. uh, so we end, we ended up having to uh, scour the the world more or less and and think through what might be particular options and and that's when uh, the concept uh, uh, and the operational model for the Rega Foundation over in Switzerland came to light, and uh, we were very, very fortunate in that. That particular organization uh, felt, uh, as we talked to them about what we were wanting to do, their, the actual president of the of the foundation at that point in time, who was a physician, was here giving a, a medical uh, talk and stopped uh, and uh, here in, in southern Missouri and talked with us for a bit. And gave us uh, some real hope that a uh, that if we could find the right funding mechanism, that that indeed we could uh, we could do some very very good things. So, and his his approach to funding was membership. So, that's kind of the way that that was our operational model, looking at, at pretty much Rega. Wow, I didn't I didn't realize that. So that you use them as the basis. Now Rega's not for profit though, right? And they is it a yes. with foundation uh, funding? They're, they're a foundation. Yeah. 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 Well, the whole idea of whether you're not for profit or for profit, uh, just you know, and uh, for us here, really wasn't uh, much of an issue. It was, it was more of of how could we financially survive mm-hmm. uh, going going forward and figure out some revenue streams. Because uh, I, I guess probably again, maybe some folks that, that were back at that point in time, but uh, here. There was there was just no funding uh, from insurance companies. Uh, it wasn't a covered service um, for uh, Medicare, and in fact, uh, Medicaid didn't didn't pay for one flight in Missouri till 1998. So we uh, we were uh, we were flailing around trying to figure out how in the world we might be able to get some dollars to to uh, to fund what we needed to, to obviously what needed to happen here. So did you raise raise private funding then? Is that why it? Well, what we, yes. What we did is uh, we sat down with a group of, of local citizens. I say we. It was not the hospital per se. I was just part of it uh, uh, at the group and said, "Is there any way that we can uh, that we can hope that we can make this work?" And the first thing was uh, that we had to come up with funding for the helicopter. So there was obviously there had to be some initial capitalization. And then we had to talk about what what was going to be the ongoing revenue stream. So the initial capitalization was uh, was put in by I believe there was 12 total uh, folks in the in the community that that put up the initial the initial dollars. And as we were doing that, it was just interesting conversation. I guess is well, how do we do this? And uh, we uh, we said well, we could do it as a charitable donation. Or we can take the depreciation off of the aircraft, and uh, also by doing, a, you know, a, a subchapter S corporation, which is what we did, then then each person could take uh, any of the losses that the uh, that that the uh, company would have going forward directly to their personal income taxes. So we uh, we chose to do a, a subchapter S uh, 
corporation instead of a not-for-profit. And I'm sure those early years, you need that because you weren't making a profit, really. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah. In fact, in fact, the distribution, uh, the losses uh, out of the organization were were yearly for uh, for a long, long time, and only until we we started seeing some funding from from uh, insurance companies and Medicare and um, some Medicaid now has, has that changed. Interesting. Well, let's go back a little bit. So from that uh, initial meeting when you wanted to uh-huh. have this idea, how long did it take you to become operational? You about know, a year. About a year, okay. Yeah. It took us about a, about a year, you know, and as we, as we, as I say to folks, uh, Literally, we were we were uh, so dumb we didn't know we couldn't do it. So we just kind of went out and did it, and uh, we we started from scratch, uh, and and built as you as you might guess in this part of the world and from where we were uh, as Spartan an organization and approach to uh, providing air ambulance services as as we possibly could, and looked at every every aspect of it uh, on the uh, on the cost side and tried to. Uh, Put together something we felt like we could we could stand the losses on going forward, um, and uh, luckily I think that probably uh, I, I say luckily it was a, a lot of work on a lot of people's parts. But uh, if we hadn't had uh, the the great reception from our from our communities here in, in the Ozarks and their willingness to uh, to support us through membership, uh, we we wouldn't have survived the first year. Mm. And so you used membership right from the beginning. Of the program. Uh, it was, it was the, that was the only way that uh, that any of the any of us that would put money in, in it to begin with uh, felt like we could even start to try to do it was to believe, and that's certainly where where Rega was a, a very uh, very positive voice for us, saying yes, you can you can get farm communities uh, to sign up to be members if they understand what you're doing. And uh, certainly, it, and, and also, uh, it, it fell on very friendly ears here because even our hospital is membership-owned. Uh, we're all members of the rural electric co-ops here. We all are members of our local fire departments. So membership was not a, a foreign idea, and as soon as we explained that without it we couldn't survive, and uh, after we flew our first flight, which was the first day we were open and, uh, and uh, had a very positive impact on uh, on our communities, it was it was very easy to do. Were, were there other programs? I've got to I have to look back on history. Were there other programs in the U.S. that were doing membership at that time? You know, interestingly, I, uh, we assumed there was not. Uh, we didn't really go looking. You know, there was no internet back then, and <laughs> there was in, inside the uh, the Ames organization at that point in time, which was really not even called Ames. Uh, there was no no one had much of a knowledge. But uh, as I uh, as I was talking at one of the Ames uh, uh, mid-years, uh, boy, I forgot the fellow's name, but out from Medford, Oregon, said that his his program had been accepting membership since uh, 19, ooh, I don't know, 70-something, uh, and or no, right around 80. So I think he may have had a membership program before we did. You're talking about Vern, Vern Bartlett? Vern Bartlett, oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, I was oh. on Medford, out actually on the... Uh, on the coast. Oh, okay. Uh, what's that guy's name? He's got. He had basically he ran ground ambulance services and had a, had a 206 that he brought in to 
back up his ground services. That's right. Vern uh, was uh, Bend. Bend. Yeah, Oregon. Vern yeah. was on the east side. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Um, from the beginnings in West Plains, then, you uh, expanded out to other rural areas. Um, where did you first start a, another base? Sure. Um, the, the, uh, one of the things that became pretty obvious uh, very quickly to us was was that uh, there was a, a huge amount of fixed cost associated with uh, with the operation, and uh, it and also it was very difficult for us to respond uh, very well with only one aircraft. So uh, from almost from the beginning, as soon as we got through that first operational year, where we could see that there was potentially a uh, uh, an opportunity. Uh, for us to be able to survive, we uh, we brought in some more investors uh, and borrowed some money. We were able to actually borrow some money on all of our personal guarantees and uh, and put our our next base over in um, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which mm-hmm. is way over on the on well, I say way over. It was what we we thought uh, made sense to us geographically, something close enough to us. That we could support it, but far enough away uh, from us to be covering more geographic area. And then you've expanded. What year was that? And you've expanded. Ooh, that would have been eighty. Uh, well, I just uh, that would have been eighty-eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that. Yeah. And you now have, if I'm counting right, is it thirteen? You're in thirteen states. 14 states 14. and 90 bases. 90, okay. I was off by one. And 90 bases. Okay. Uh, Friday we opened a new base, so oh, okay. since we talked last, yeah. yes. Um, obviously, like other areas of the country, there has uh, probably been some real change in healthcare resources that are available in southern Missouri uh, since your start and, of course, other rural areas. Um, what have been the changes, and how has that affected the operations of Aravac? Sure, let me take a little of that, and then maybe Seth, you can you can talk some too. But it, it's a, a very interesting question, uh, and uh, having been here and, and lived through this since uh, since the mid '70s, um, and certainly been involved in in the healthcare world since the early '80s, um, it's uh, we tend to say it. Um, in, in several ways, but uh, in one is uh, we were 120 miles from the trauma center um, when we started this. That was the closest uh, available trauma center to us, and we're still 120 miles from a trauma center. Um, but that really doesn't even tell the whole story. Even uh, even though we put our the program together way back when to and to primarily. Uh, try to respond to traumatic injury uh, in our area. Uh, the technology obviously is, has uh, skyrocketed during the last 25 years, and um, that that skyrocketing of technology, which is very time dependent, quite often in in uh, in cardiology and neurology in particular, has even made it more us more isolated, I guess is the best way to say it, from what I call time-dependent time intervention types of uh, life-saving measures. So if I was actually rating 
the medical care for for southern Missouri right now um, on the basics we're better um, and if you need to have your gallbladder taken out we we're probably uh, much better than what we were than what we were 25 years ago if you if you want to talk about the the latest interventions associated in cardiology neurology or or trauma were uh, as far away as we ever were and maybe even more time sensitive than we than we were 25 years ago we wouldn't fly a cardiology patient 25 years ago uh, there was really no need now it's an obvious uh, obvious uh, issue so I'd say we've gone backwards if you want to look at it that way mm-hmm. and yet other parts this is Seth uh, other parts as Coleman was talking about the third base uh, over in Cape Girado that's an example of an area that had two uh, hospitals and were clearly hospitals that sent a, a fair number of uh, patients to St. Louis for definitive care, and yet today our uh, trauma centers have a uh, uh, full, uh, full uh, uh, array of cardiac services, so they are clearly receiving hospitals now since that first aircraft was placed, and in fact, because of that, four years ago, we moved aircraft out of Cape uh, Girado and moved it south so that we now have uh, essentially about four bases that surround Cape Girado and feed patients into there rather than taking them out uh, of that area. So we we do see things change, uh, certainly as Golan's relating uh, his past here in, in West Plains. While uh, many things are just as far away as they were then, some other areas of the country we've seen improvements, and in other areas we've probably seen it go backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's interesting. So how how has that affected, you know, I've looked at your mission and vision statement on the, the website. Has that changed much, given what you've just said, um, especially to you, Colin, um, from when you started, uh, well, when, when Airbag started until now? You know, I would say uh, there has been some evolution and some more focus, I would say, as we've gone forward. You know, there in those beginning years, uh, the, the, whole, the whole idea here was to just be financially viable enough to survive uh, until the next year. And as we tried to, and tried to put more aircraft in the area where where they made more sense. Indeed, uh, I would say in the early years, uh, we put aircraft in more populated areas uh, where there just were no other aircraft around. And actually, uh, like in Cape Girardeau, as Seth was talking about, or Springdale, Arkansas, uh, was, our, was our next base. So the, the end result was uh, uh, bringing um, those as they they were relatively populated, but there was just no other aircraft around. So you ended up having to uh, put your aircraft in the center of a populated area, just like all uh, uh, across the country we've done, and then reach out and reach out as far as you could. And the change has been the ability to fund uh, more aircraft. And uh, as things have changed, just like in Cape Girardeau with their with their capabilities. To, to literally be able to up the number of aircraft in a service area uh, and get them get them farther and farther away from receiving facilities and into more and more uh, lower populated uh, needy areas uh, that uh, would 
there just was no no hope for having an air ambulance uh, years and years ago. So, you know, now uh, as we look at where we place aircraft, we continue to uh, place them in as in in where we're asked, of course, and where where in fact it makes the, the most sense geographically uh, for the patients. And, and that I say is has been somewhat of an evolution. Um, but uh, I think the bigger evolution is truly just pure, purely the concentration of aircraft and the realization of, of just how needy uh, communities are for a, a very, very close asset uh, versus where we were 25 years ago. And you've pushed, um, I know at the, at the time, uh, you know, a lot of hospital-based programs, including ones that I was at, you know, the aircraft would be sitting at the hospital and they saying, you know, we serve the rural areas around us, but the, the aircraft wasn't placed out there. And I, and I know that's led to a lot of programs, uh, even traditional hospital based ones of putting satellite bases, uh, in. So I guess my question is, is I know that you've mainly expanded into rural areas or areas that are, uh, what you consider underserved. That has caused some competitive friction with the hospital-based providers in certain areas. And I guess, how do you answer that criticism? And, and then, more importantly, how do you define a service area? Well, that's, I think that is the critical piece, is the definition of a, of a service area. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, those of, us, those of us in the industry and in the community um, tend to have, I think, what, what I call a, a very myopic view of of what what it takes to to make a viable program and we're always in the viewing service area from the concept of what what how much area is it going to take for us to be economically viable uh, but if you take it from the community's point of view and uh, individuals living out in the middle of the sticks like myself we'd all love to have a helicopter in the in my pasture right next to where we live, right right in our communities, because that's how we save lives. And the real question on service area is, in my mind, is, is how small a service area can we economically survive in and maintain uh, uh, clinical skills in with the, with the fewest number of flights. And that's, I think, really the definition of, this, <clears throat> of our service area going forward and I don't know that there is any real geographic uh, definition, but but certainly in my mind, I'd, I uh, I I believe we have many many underserved areas uh, in the country. And as we as we talk about a service area, um, and Seth can can give you a lot more detail on that. We really very seldom talk talk uh, anywhere. Well, we, we basically say it's the county that the aircraft is sitting in, and then the counties that surround it. And that's about as far out as as we ever believe we can we can be an effective uh, uh, resource for for the communities. Mm-hmm. And that that is uh, probably a, a real significant I, I think difference in how we how we look at what we do. The, the answer the question really isn't you know, for competitiveness. As I've talked to many many folks about it, I say, well, you if you want to go to a community, just tell us, and uh, that's great. And the more the more aircraft that are out in in uh, rural communities around the metropolitan area, the better. And uh, we'll we'll work around that. And uh, and that that's where I think the the issue comes from is 
is being more concerned about the economic viability of a particular type of model versus the actual needs of the of the communities that and the people that are that are living in them and that's that's where we've gotten a lot of rub and once once everybody gets past that and and does realize that that air programs can survive on relatively uh, small uh, flight volumes if they just work at it uh, we we've been able to to see a tremendous increase in the number of aircraft in rural communities which is great and let me take a little bit different approach to it uh, as you said, you you and I both I we both managed uh, the more traditional hospital-based programs, and certainly I know from history we used to draw that 150-mile radius uh, around our our hospital and uh, uh, call that our service area, and it was our service area quite possessive. Um, but the reality, as we know, and and uh, certainly if you look from a medical standpoint, and if we even want to talk about the golden hour. Um, we know, quite frankly, I don't care how fast, even with the Dolphin at the University of Florida, you can't get to the patient out at that 150 or even close to it, to the 150 mark or 130 mark for that matter, get to them, package them, and return to your receiving center uh, anywhere near that golden hour. In fact, it's about twice that amount of time. And yet the citizens and the sending agencies of rural areas um, are requesting or demanding better levels of service and, and are out to identify um, of who, who might help. And so as we are approached quite often um, to, to do that, you ask a little bit about how that's gone and, and you know, yes, it, it causes a rub, but there's been a, a number of different um, reactions that we've uh, certainly received over the years and, and over time. Unfortunately, uh, uh, things like being denied access to get into uh, receiving hospital pads or charged landing fees to land there, um, things like uh, uh, going in, as, as Colin was talking about, having sit-down discussions with folks. I can give an example, don't need to say where it was, but it was certainly in the Midwest, an area Oh, a couple of years after I had come to Aravac and actually knew the people at this um, urban program because we had a common vendor in the past and people that I had known for some time and said, we are coming into the area, want to coordinate with frequencies for bringing you patients, et cetera, but we're coming into this area and wanted to let you know and see how we can work together. And um, they certainly were not at all happy and uh, made some comments pretty negative and and um, my, you know, they just said, we don't need another helicopter in the area. We serve that area. And I said, well, if they're your customers, you should talk to them because they don't believe they're getting the level of service. And I've got letters and calls and requests to come in. But what I could suggest to you is that you look at several areas around your service area since you've got two aircraft sitting in the city and put them out into these other communities um, you go there, I'm not going to go there. But if it's not me going there, someone else will go because these people, both agencies and citizens, are requesting a better level of service. The unfortunate response in that particular situation was that six months after we went in, an aircraft did, in fact, come out of the city. Unfortunately, it came within 10 miles of, of our aircraft, and yet there were a 360-degree radius around that city that, that could have gone in. And then 
another six months later, another operator placed two aircraft in a different direction outside the city. And uh, sure enough, uh, the, the the people demand a different level of service, and they will get that from from someone. Um, uh, the unfortunate thing is, is that quite often, if a if a if a the threat comes to the, either that flight program and or the hospital, and I would tell you those are two very different things. The threat to a flight program at a program management level um, is really for fear of loss of an aircraft or their volume dropping and losing an aircraft or people out of their program. Uh, the the other the other thing is that the hospital may fear that if it's not their aircraft picking people up in the whole surrounding region, that, uh, that they may not receive as many patients as they currently are uh, if it's their own aircraft that's picking them up. Mm-hmm. So that can cause a, a variety of reactions if if, uh, if one feels threatened, and unfortunately, uh, quite often, they're, they're not very positive. I, I think the, the the positive thing that has come out of it, though, is, you know, and, and working with EMS agencies, I mean, it's always ETA. That's what they're interested in is when can you be here. Uh, and we talked about the golden hour. When you're at the hospital, your your empty leg is going out to get the patient rather than, than vice versa. So I think you've really pushed a lot of change in that area, and I think that's been positive for a lot of the providers. In fact, some of them don't even base any of the uh, helicopters at the hospital anymore. They're out in the Absolutely. areas. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Airbag's been a change agent, absolutely, um, no doubt about it. It hasn't been uh, hasn't been easy to do that, uh, as you would know from Nordic skiing. If you're that front front guy plowing <laughs> through the the snow, that's it's not easy, and um, it, it hasn't been easy. And certainly, Colin and the folks before um, um, were well aware of that. And even from the time I came in, realizing that being a change agent or um, really with a paradigm shift in hospital-based traditional um, at the urban center flying, as I call the old hub and spoke, coming from the middle out, and you're right, the deadhead leg out to the person. It is not the most effective, but it's the most efficient if you're going to have one helicopter or two because as soon as you move an aircraft out in one direction, you're increasing your 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 time and response in the opposite direction, as we all know, and so it does require more aircraft to uh, to be able to deliver uh, that that same level of service and surrounding. But that's a very positive thing: is that many aircraft have been moved out of cities and out into the areas closest to the people in need to get them to definitive care quicker. And I, and we're going to cover some clinical questions, but I know always the pushback or when I was involved in programs putting satellite bases is how do you do the training, you know, that they you have to bring people in. So, but uh, we'll, we'll cover that. I wanted to g- talk a little bit more on the business side now. Uh, you know, Airbac is one of the largest air medical providers in the country. How How did and do you prepare and sustain this growth without compromising safety, clinical quality, and profitability? Well, I think one of the things Colin and I talked about at length when when he asked me to join AeroVac back, actually that was in 2002, but I joined in January of 2003, so this is right at seven years, uh, in fact, uh, tomorrow, seven years. Wow. Oh, happy anniversary. Preparing for- What's that? Is it a happy anniversary if it's what, seven yeah, years thank tomorrow? You. Yeah. Thank you. It yes. doesn't seem that long ago. It just seems like you went down there. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem. It uh, was just realizing that as I was talking to our orientation class uh, two days ago, uh, or yesterday, I guess that was. Um, I told them I was sitting in that same class seven years ago. So we uh, we talked about growth. Uh, Colin, just to kind of take you to that point in time, Colin came to the company in 97 as president, and there were three bases, correct, Colin? That's right. And had grown it to 27 bases by the time I came in January of 03. And the talk was about how many, I, I was absolutely flabbergasted by the, the, the number of areas requesting aircraft, making a, a very solid case for why there was a, the, the need and the demand was there and talking about the future. And one of the things that that, uh, that I spent time assessing really in that first year and didn't really make a lot of change but said to Colin is, is that we have got to standardize and put systems in place if we – at the point we were right then, really, it, it needed it, but it absolutely needed it for a foundation to, to build on in the future. Didn't make me a very popular guy, and Colin could chuckle – to that when uh, when standardization when uh, you can imagine that with 27 bases and if all their all their bags and their setup in the aircraft and everything was very individual to their needs and they can say healthcare is local and this is the best for us here and yet I believe that we needed to to standardize and I said that'll be the key to quality and safety this standardization and set out really at that point to. Uh, certainly, with Colin helping in the the leadership of of the of the future to uh, to get our aircraft standardized, our medical bag system standardized, even uh, the, the the protocols, medical protocols, our QI, so that it was really company wide, our training and tooling facilities. We continued standardized, standardized, standardized because you then can take one approach your quality systems uh, feedback on your training, your implementation, and your, your systems that you put in place um, that really begin to hone in on, on a continual quality improvement process, really. Um, as I use for people as, as being a change agent really inside of here, uh, 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 as I said, look, we, we have an, a, a very tight network of bases, people covered another base, for example, and yet we cannot afford to have what I call rental car syndrome. And Ed, I know you did enough traveling uh, over the years, uh, certainly in doing consulting and operations. You, you fly in late to a place, uh, your, your, you know, your aircraft is late commercial, and you jump into your rental car, and you're driving uh, heading to this meeting in a hurry and it starts to rain and I know in, in my car I flip down with my left hand and grab what's the uh, the turn signal and flip right. it and my wipers are there. It's yeah. an instinct. I know that. Suddenly in that rental car you do that and you've turned the blinker on and you're not doing anything and what happens? Your situational awareness is now in the cabin of the car. You still don't have wipers. You're on an unfamiliar road and that's a very bad situation to be in. Um we can't afford to have those things happen, whether it's grabbing an, uh, an ET tube in the back of a helicopter or for a pilot who has any level of emergency in the front. We need to be operating under those uh, 
those rote sorts of moves, and that means no matter what aircraft, what location, there are enough other variables in this, uh, the context of, of operating in an environment, whether you're the medical person in the back or a pilot in the front or a mechanic uh, out to work on an aircraft, uh, that that standardization has really just been uh, huge for us. We then were able to incorporate simulators and um, scenario-based training. We can get into that, that later, but uh, the experience that we gain in a standard system feeds back, data drives the feedback and the continual quality improvement, and that really helps to, helps to uh, keep costs down when you can standardize. Uh, it's also allowed us to take on a, a number of safety initiatives um, as, as we've gone through and uh, assessed risks and, and manage risk um, with, a, with a common fleet. I don't I, I know, know if we're going to get into that later or yeah, I, I had, that now. I had some questions. I, I, I know you've had some acquisitions um, uh, that you've added on uh, bases, programs. How have you uh, approached that as far as the standardization we, uh, we've really incorporated two different companies. Uh, in 2005, we bought a company called Critical Air Medicine. Um, we, we bought the assets um, from them, and they maintained their fixed-wing program still today under that name. But those 10 helicopter bases that were uh, L3s uh, in Texas, 10 bases and um, uh, 11, 12 aircraft, we, we actually have incorporated them into uh, the AeroVac standardization process and now paint and uh, completing the last, in fact, this year completing the, the last uh, uh, fleet uh, changes to the back end of those aircraft in terms of standardization. Uh, it was standard to them in that area and that worked, but we were, we're changing that as we speak. Uh, the second company that was purchased was uh, Texas Lifestar in 2006, and that was five bases also in Texas. Uh, in fact, we did the final change uh, for them uh, in uh, December, just last month. Uh, they all became AeroVac bases. We had continued to operate them under the name Texas Lifestar, but yet uh, more than a year ago had incorporated them into all of our policies, training, uh, went back and essentially redid everything with that, that staff, both pilot and medical staff and, and maintenance uh, folks through our integrated system uh, to, to bring them on board. So we've, uh, the, while we've been able to identify and incorporate uh, new ideas that we learn, as you know, you bring in new, uh, new people in a company and you identify some best practices that they have, but for the most part, our systems have been set up to incorporate uh, those those two companies really into the, the the processes we had already established for AeroVac, and that's that's gone extremely well. Plus the fact that those acquisitions were both with companies that were similar and also uh, uh, kindred spirit, I guess uh, we would say, in terms of culture and in, in operations as community-based models with similar aircraft type. This is the break in the interview that was started on Tuesday, January 12th, due to me having to leave to take my father to the emergency department. I picked back up with Seth on Wednesday, and unfortunately, Colin could not join the call as he had a family commitment. 
Seth, uh, welcome back, and uh, sorry for the uh, interruption. Uh, everything's fine uh, with my father. We spent about five hours in the emergency department, but uh, it was all seemed to be um, dehydration, so we're working on that now. So, Well, I'm glad it wasn't anything more serious, Ed. We were concerned at the time when you had to go, but certainly understand uh, the patient's got to come first there. A- so. Absolutely. That's, that's our business, and I, I'm sorry that... Uh, Colin can could not uh, come back uh, for this recording, but I think most of our questions will be uh, targeted at you anyhow. Where we left off, we were talking about um, uh, the acquisitions that you've made. Seth, were all those uh, aircraft 206 aircraft when you purchased the companies? Um, the critical air medicine bases, those 10 bases with, with backup aircraft, were in fact all 206 aircraft. However, the five uh, bases we acquired as Texas Lifestar, four of those were uh, 407s. Uh, and as you may know, the 407 is a Bell type certificate, uh, uh, very similar, this almost the same, uh, even in looks uh, to the 206, happens to be a four-bladed with some composite materials, uh, uh, really an updated version of the 206. So its cabin uh, is retrofitted the, the same and uh, uh, certainly a different engine and slightly different tooling, but extremely similar uh, in uh, in its uh, operation and certainly its its interior. And to the layperson, quite honestly, unless they notice there's four blades instead of two, I tell most people they probably wouldn't notice the difference in a 206 and a 407. Do you, do you have to do different check rides with that? Or do you have to be... Certified. We actually uh, choose to do both because uh, we don't have a 407 backup, and mm-hmm. so uh, what we do is uh, we do check rides actually in both. We uh, we do our training and our simulator here is all 206 specific here in West Plains for that recurrent, but the pilots assigned to that base go back and do a duplicate check ride in their 407, so that we always keep them current in the 206 as well as in the 407. But that's only uh, four bases, and they're all uh, near each other around the Dallas uh, Metroplex. Okay. So that works well, very well for us. I think that leads into my uh, other question, because I've always looked at Aravac, and I think others have that, you know, it's sort of the southwest of the air medical community in that you have standardized on, on one aircraft, except now for the, the few um, Bell 407s that you talk about. Um, why has Aravac now stayed with this platform, the the Bell 206 Long Rangers, and and what are the advantages and and then also the disadvantages of of that one aircraft? Sure. There's actually uh, the first part of your question, why why the 206? Well, certainly initially uh, the 206 has been a very widely utilized aircraft. In fact, uh, more than uh, has accumulated more hours and in fact more aircraft itself out there in the world 14,000 uh, L1s and L3s are uh, out in the United States and I, I don't think there's another airframe or aircraft uh, with that many of type uh, out there and available so first first of all availability um, certainly one of the things I was told was as, as, the, as the company began growing, that availability became a very key component of the success of uh, being able to acquire 206s. But certainly from the beginning, the 206 was uh, an economical workhorse. 
Um, 206 was what I flew in in my first nine years down at University of Florida back in the early 80s. was a fairly common airframe uh, in the 80s uh, used in EMS. So AeroVac began with it. They also had no trouble finding available um, aircraft. And also, um, it's, uh, it's an aircraft that, um, from parts availability, as you can imagine, um, uh, is, is very easy to come by and a very straightforward, tried and true sort of aircraft. Also, an excellent safety record. Uh, uh, certainly, Bell has purported uh, that, that the 206, by its record alone, in terms of hours flown, has the best safety record of any helicopter uh, in the civilian world. There was a uh, there's there's three times more 206s uh, in terms of hours flown than than its next closest uh, aircraft in in the civil world, based on a, a 2002 civil rotorcraft uh, risk study that was done, and uh, uh, Roy Fox was the principal uh, investigator. Um, that that study is out there, and it. It revealed that uh, the fatal injuries uh, in 206s were 0.43 per 100,000 hours flown, and that's back when the FAA uh, was actually collecting hours up until the late 90s when they somewhat discontinued that practice, which I think many of us wish they wouldn't have quit collecting that. But uh, the next closest to that was uh, twin turbines at at 0.52 and other singles were at 0.67 per 100,000 hours. So, I mean, just purely by a statistic right there, uh, uh, very tried and true aircraft. Certainly uh, um, highly reliable. Our our uptime has improved to a 99% availability with this aircraft. Real benefit, which we can talk about later, but in terms of tooling and parts and having a ver- having a common fleet across um, the states and uh, with uh, regional maintenance facilities interspersed uh, for every five bases and parts out in the field, uh, the uptime and available time is just uh, unbelievable. And the direct operating costs are are certainly low uh, by ca- by comparison to many others, and uh, our ability to to do work with them and and uh, do a fair amount of our own work through overhaul uh, of components and uh, uh, certainly structures work, which I think you saw when, when you were here years ago, mm-hmm. um, is is a wonderful opportunity for us. Certainly, you ask, and it's all it's certainly fair. There there are advantages and disadvantages to I think just about any any uh, any aircraft, and and uh, I would tell you that the. The limits to it would be uh, um, it's not well suited for specialty type transport. If you want to do neonatal um, with incubators and uh, and or balloon pumps, uh, the, you know when you want to take extra equipment, extra people. If you want a three three person team, those sort of uh, specialty uh, care is really not it's not well suited for that. Um, Certainly, uh, we've got some aircraft that were configured uh, to, to be able to take three, uh, but we, we changed the, the interior in the, in the back end to, to no longer allow that. Um, so that, that certainly is a limit to it. There, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but 
We would never purport to be all things to all people either. That's not uh, those are not tight missions that we uh, were doing in our 206s. We are doing some balloon pump transport, for example, uh, utilizing the 407s, but it's got a does have a different stretcher system in it and uh, was set up. Uh, those were set up prior to our ownership of the Texas Lifestar bases, but uh, that certainly I think could be viewed as a, a, a disadvantage. And, and I, I guess the other thing you were talking about standardization, and um, that's why I you know use the the Southwest, you know, because they all have flying 737s, but it's it's got to be in all your training, um, you know, for your pilots. You can move pilots around because they're going to be on this. It's the same aircraft, and then also. For the clinical staff, I you know everything is set up the same, so you can can move from aircraft to aircraft, and it's standardized. Absolutely, yeah. Our, our staff know our, our maintenance, and our we have our own field tech reps. Really, um, we do twenty four hour a day, seven day a week uh, on duty here uh, as a tech rep to our own people, if you will, folks that have acquired so many hours and know this two hundred six. I mean, we we know this better than anyone um, uh, around the world. I would put our folks up in terms of knowing the ins and outs of this. In fact, Bell quite often uses us as a resource and asks questions, have you seen this or that? Uh, because we're we're accumulating about 60,000 hours a year on 206s um, per year. So we're, we're racking up a lot of hours over the, over the years, and this is our 25th anniversary year. So you can imagine the we're certainly putting a lot of hours and have a lot of experience with that airframe. Yeah, and speaking of Bell, um, as far as total aircraft and hours, you've got to be the largest uh, Bell operator in the world, right? I mean, a 206 operator. We're, we're, yeah, largest 206 long ranger. Mm-hmm. Apparently there's a few uh, B-model fleets that are larger, but uh, uh, in terms of the long ranger, that's correct. That's correct. Well, one of the other criticisms uh, that you hear in our community and and you know i'm going to be up front i've the first program i worked with at uh, fairfax hospital initially was flying uh, bell 206 long rangers um also uh, used the aircraft when I, we were had the program in south carolina um so i'm, I'm used to it but I, I wanted to hear from you um, because i think people want to hear that there's criticism you know well it should be dual engine it's safer i think you touched upon that and i know you know, statistics uh, can lie because, you know, maybe the total number of accidents, but when you look at the total hours flown, there's many more uh, of the 206 flying out there. So how would you answer that uh, question, you know, of of the single engine versus dual engine from a safety? Well, I think you addressed some of the issues as we try to answer that question and look at statistics, certainly external haul or power line, you know, there are some pretty pretty uh, uh, high-risk sorts of, of uh, work being done that much of that encompasses some single engine. Uh, also, uh, as you may or may not know, Robinson's used for uh, training <laughs> to have, the, I believe, the single highest accident rate, uh, which the, the, the R-22 uh, uh, being a primary economical aircraft uh, piston uh, for for training has its high. So if you if you try and really talk about what we're doing, and, and I like to try and do the best comparison that we can, and that is in, let's take EMS. Uh, first of all, uh, um, engine failures are, are very rare. If you're talking about a single versus a twin, quite often it's because if, if you had a failure, you would 
have a second engine to continue on and and then make an emergency landing as opposed to uh, immediate auto rotation. Um, in EMS, we know of uh, fatal accidents uh, that involved uh, uh, an engine failure, and there were two of them of note. Um, I did this did this research when I was in Kansas City, in fact, with Light Flight Eagle, and they were um, uh, in single-engine aircraft, and uh, there was a discussion about whether they should be in, in twins or singles. And so this board uh, certainly wanted uh, the, the data pulled. Mm-hmm. And what it revealed was there were two, one of them being a single, which happened to be in Kansas City, um, and the other was a twin, and if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to go back to look. I believe it was in Michigan. And uh, if I'm also, the question was, why did an engine failure cause a fatality? And in fact, I believe it was pilot error that the the wrong engine, when when an engine had a failure, or the, the good engine was shut down, and pilot was not prepared for an immediate auto rotation, and led to a, a fatality, uh, to fatalities in that. So. Uh, history doesn't certainly lay that out. And then if we actually look at accidents, and uh, Ira Blumen in, in 2008 actually did some interesting comparison and laid out the actually somewhat answered that question about singles versus twins. And uh, his 10-year history showed uh, 65 single-engine accidents and 81 twin-engine accidents, which represents uh, respectively 45% of the accidents were single engine, while 42% of our fleet, as we know it in EMS, according to, again, this is all Ira Blumen's uh, data, 42% of the fleet is is uh, uh, single engine and 45% of the accidents, and likewise, uh, 55% of the accidents being twin with 58% of the fleet representing twin. So almost, I mean, almost mirrors. So there's really nothing drastic showing uh, there as well. Um, we all know you can't do IFR with a single engine aircraft or not, not doing IFR, at least not in rotorcraft. Um, I, I feel very comfortable and confident in flying in these and putting my family in them as well. I, I, uh, uh, as I listen to people, it's, I, I, believe it's, I, I believe it to be more of a passionate issue than I do a logical issue on the single versus twin and and as you probably know uh in the 80s we were a predominance of singles the pendulum swung towards the twins and you are now seeing that pendulum swing uh, back Mm -hmm. uh, towards the singles so uh, over time i think uh, i think the data and what's actually the experience is is uh, is is proving to to uh, to be heard by more people, and that and that passion uh, versus reality is is uh, there, there is a difference. Well, and certainly, I mean, you can't ignore there is a, a cost thing, but I, I don't think that's the only reason. Because I was, you know, at a program that had a single and a dual engine. It was an older Bell aircraft, and um, the two hundred six was flying circles around it. I mean, it uh, yeah. had a better payload, uh, it was more reliable, but. Uh, Uh, There's no doubt that the uptime can be uh, substantially higher on on the single than on the the twin. I mean, it's just a simple fact of maintenance and redundant systems are, you know, certainly require more maintenance as well. Well, let's talk about some other safety things. I 
read that uh, you've added night vision goggles. I know that uh, you're going to be looking at widespread implementation. Can you tell us about uh, that decision and how that's going? Sure. We uh, began the implementation uh, last, uh, well, I say last year. We've just, it's just now 2010. We actually began the end of 08. And uh, that was after almost a year of approval from our uh, working through an approval with our FISDO. I think many people in the uh, community know that uh, some of the challenges that operators have faced is uh, we had we had no one in our, our FAA uh, district office that had NVG experience, and therefore they had to go to school. Um, in fact, then came down and got some training and got checked off here in West Plains before they could then go, because we had some aircraft modified already, um, but not able to use them yet. Um, uh, ironic that then our folks came to, to do their check rides and then were able to be approved and have have uh, gone through a pretty uh, aggressive implementation process uh, with 105 aircraft. We now have uh, just over 60 of our aircraft uh, modified with 50. We finished the year with 57 bases uh, operating night vision goggles. We will complete the implementation and training in all of our all of our bases will be uh, night vision goggle um, operations uh, by August 1st of this year. Oh wow! One of the one of the things that we just believe um, in in particularly if any company should be across the board NVG, we felt it was us in the rural environment. We've got uh, you know long distances between uh, farms and lights, if you will. Uh, flying in a very rural area, and it's not until you get into a more urban type setting do you have a lot of a lot of lighting. So uh, certainly, uh, most any of us that are recruiting pilots in regularly from the military, that those pilots um, also uh, have a much higher comfort level flying night vision goggles at night because most of their time um, in, in the military is all aided flight at night. Unaided time at night is. Uh, uh, becoming uh, few and far between for pilots in their experience. So uh, we've made a very significant investment. It's uh, it's about sixty thousand per aircraft and base uh, to to do the, uh, the the goggle implementation. So so that's between a, the aircraft that, and yeah, that's a major expense for you all. Then I mean, if you sure. calculate that out with all your bases. So. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, great. I know that's been a uh, you know it's it's been an item that uh, you know that the uh, NTSB has uh, suggested, and um, it's nice to see. There's a lot of programs, and I, you're absolutely right. I think some of the early adopters, the FAA, really was the holdup is to try to get approval, and uh, they've expedited that now. We um, actually even tried about ten of the. Uh of the floor type uh, systems as well, but they're not, uh, you know, they don't move with you. They're a stationary uh, view. And uh, um, actually we looked at several different technologies. How do we, how do we see better at night? I mean, and and as you know, the NTSB recommendation was for one of uh, several methods possible. And I think other people will find it. It's up to the the individual to decide, I think, what environment they're operating in and what Mm. works best for them. 
really. But uh, we, we finally decided to, to take one standard approach, and that was uh, NVG. You had uh, alluded, uh, and I think I'm, I was counting the years, I think it was five years that I was in West Plains, and it was when I was the president of Ames, and we were doing uh, uh, some site visits as part of the membership uh, changes and got to talk to you and uh, Colin. Two things I was very impressed with uh, during the visit was the, the maintenance facility that you have, and you, you've touched upon both of these, but um, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on how you bring in the 206s and completely refurbish them. And in the other area um, that I don't think a lot of people realize is that the, the simulator and how you've expanded that, because I know I've talked to you and others since then and how you've expanded that sim simulator training to include clinical staff now too. Sure. Well, the first item uh, being the, uh, the completion center or our 145 uh, completion uh, uh, facility. We, uh, we, we had, I think just opened maybe our new facility when, when you, uh, came to, to look, were we in our, it was a 43,000 square foot yes, uh, I think building. You had, Did you see the new one? Yes. Mm -hmm. and, I think it had uh, just opened. Okay. And, and that really is because really up until, up until last year, we bought all used uh, 206s as i said their their availability around the world is is plentiful um and we we found that our we, we placed our destiny in our own hands uh, to be able to buy aircraft and then bring them in uh we were able to purchase a jig and uh, uh with an agreement from bell that we would only do uh, our own work and not outside work so we've got one of only four jigs for a 206 here in the united states to do structures uh work in and um, to do substantial uh, maintenance in that regard and certainly paint facility wiring harness and, and wiring kits to where we literally as you saw take the aircraft down to the airframe when it comes in and it is completely stripped uh any any components or excuse me any uh, anything that's had uh, body work anything all paint and and uh, primer everything is removed down to literally the metal and the rivets and then rebuilt back uh no none of the original wiring really nothing we, we completely rebuild it and that way um as you can imagine, you do, you don't chase a, a wiring problem. All of our aircraft are wired by the same harness that we build here. Um, all the components are are uh, mounted, and uh, you know everything's the same. When I talked about standardization, I meant literally um, not only just to the way a layperson might look at the back and realize that our bag system and the the dash, if you will, uh, up front for the pilot looks the same, but it literally, from a detail standpoint, for our mechanics, um, we, we rebuild the aircraft. Uh, it makes it lighter um, because we take any excess out. Uh, we, we change uh, the skids. We do we do all sorts of things to make this a more efficient aircraft for us in the environment that we operate in, and. In Europe, in fact, uh, these would uh, these would be zero timed as uh, as new aircraft if they go through this process. Um, that's not the case here. The hours on the aircraft continue, and the serial number 
and everything uh, continue on, and that's not really the point. It's really because we now know exactly what we have and have a confidence level in the quality of the work that's done with that aircraft um, when it comes out of that facility. In fact, uh, I had a very... Uh, <laughs> Uh, had a great opportunity, had had a, um, a legislator here with staff who uh, someone had had talked to this person about uh, the age of aircraft and, and uh, actually had, had voiced some concern over the fact that we had aircraft uh, uh, more than 20 years old that were flying in our, in our fleet. And I think, uh, unfortunately, most lay people think of an automobile and you think of a 20 year old automobile and think, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty, pretty uh, old. You mentioned Southwest <laughs> airlines and their 737s uh, are, are probably on average about 10 years older than our 206s. But um, I had the opportunity to uh, tour these folks over in our completion center. This is just about four months ago. We had a brand new L4 that we had just completed um, over a 60-day period that had come new from Bell. So it's essentially a you know couple hours flown on it to get it here and and had its completion done. Also had a 24-year-old uh, Bell L1 that had just gone through uh, its completion uh, as well. And they were both ready to go to the field. In fact, uh, one, one was ready to go the day before I asked that they hold it, and they were sitting side by side. And I, I asked all of them to, to take a close look at these aircraft and tell me what they could tell was the difference in these <laughs> aircraft, you know. And they, they weren't really getting it, and I, I said, well, take a, you know, take a real close look, and, well, you know, there's something obviously in aviation or something that we don't understand. And I said, well, one of them's 24 years old, and the other one's two months old. So now go back and take a look and tell me which one's the 24-year-old. <laughs> and they just looked at me with, you know, deer in the headlights. They opened cowlings and doors. Can we look in here and there? And I mean, they, they looked at everything and said, I have no idea. And I said, well, that's what I thought. I just, I just wanted you to have an opportunity to see what a difference it is, and you know, so. Well, you, it is. You, it's you it's very impressive because when that's what impressed me when I was there. I think you, there was a aircraft that you had just purchased and brought in, so you saw it in that state, and then you saw it in the various states that you're talking about, and it really, you know, by the time you're done, it, it's a brand new aircraft. Sure. And, Sure. And the only other thing that we did along with Bell was um, we we are the first and the only who have – we worked with Bell and the FAA to um, to complete what's called a vision project, and that was to take L1s and L3s and um, uh, get the first article and change them to an L4 lift capability and capacity. Uh, which which basically is about another 230-pound um, ability. So there's modifications that we make both structurally and in the drivetrain um, and now are converting at the rate of one a month our L1s and L3s into um, L4-capable aircraft. Uh, is that, even is more that actually considered an L4 then? Seth is, uh, no, when it's you're called done. an L1 plus or an L3 plus, I but see. it does have its paperwork and and uh, uh, then it changes its gross weight uh, changes to the new, which which interestingly enough, our ability w what it added to instead of 230, which by the book would have been the additional capacity, 
Uh, actually, it's turned out to be closer to 300 pounds uh, increase because the L1 uh, in particular is much lighter than a brand new. Our, our new L1 is about 100 pounds lighter than a new L4. So you get the same gross uh, capacity, but it's a lighter aircraft. So you really, uh, um, in terms of its its speed, its lift, its uh, capabilities, is has been a wonderful uh, change for us. And so, so that completion center really has served us very well in terms of bringing in aircraft for refurbishment um, that exists in our fleet, as well as bringing in aircraft from outside when we were buying used. And we, we stopped buying used a year ago. Uh, we ordered 19 uh, L4s that we're in the, in the middle of receiving. We'll receive eight of those uh, this year and another eight next year. And at the same time, we're continuing to convert our L1s and L3s up to L4 uh, c- capabilities uh, at a rate of one a month. So, so you're going to convert pretty the, substantial the whole fleet. refurbishment. The whole fleet yes. will be yeah, okay. And and why did you start buying new? Is it because they're uh, you've pretty much uh, took over the used market in the world? Well, uh, no, there's still more used to have out there, but uh, it's very labor intensive, as you might imagine. Um, it's a sizable investment to convert from the L1s and L3s. And, and once we've been through the completion process of which, uh, this year, I'm happy to say we, you know, we've gotten every one of those torn down to the, to the level that you saw now because of the, the new capabilities, uh, that we built into our 145 repair station, um, we also could get availability. In fact, those eight L4s, uh, I got to tell you, several years back, uh, weren't even available to us. We could have gotten a couple, and and the reality of it was we made a conscious decision to go to the L4-capable 206, because we love the 206, and as the market softened, and you know how how things have gone recently, um, it made a lot of sense for us to purchase new um, to bring in, and so uh, we'll, we'll continue to do that. Uh, and at the same time, we'll um, continue to upgrade our existing uh, fleet. And so that's that's been a real good blend for us uh, t- to do that. I should never ask two part question. So, um, I'll, so the second I, part of that was, was the, the, the the simulators. Sim- yes, right. You bet. About. Five years ago, I guess it was, uh, in fact, it was our, um, yeah, that's, that's probably five, five and a half years ago, um, I had, uh, was getting pretty, uh, digging in really to the training processes and the benefits of uh, of what a simulator could do over what a, uh, you know, just doing your check rides and emergency procedures. And I've always been was always struck by the fact that uh, most operators, as I knew it before I came here, uh, did not do full auto rotations to the ground. Um, They would always simulate. They'd bring it down and then flare out before they actually landed. And I know guys uh, had pilots tell me, you know, in the military we did, but in civilian, nobody wants to do it, afraid to damage an aircraft. And I began to ask, (laughs) I guess, a lot more questions uh, um, in the aviation side, having a medical background and non-aviation background um, about so just what all procedures do you do um, for real all the way and because you've got to have a confidence level and you better be ready when when the need arises how do you how do you train for a hydraulic failure or you know there's certain things you just don't and can't do um, when you do your check ride 
And so um, I set out really with a plan to justify buying our own uh, Frasca simulator. I'd been down to Bell and to um, Air Logistics um, and looked at theirs. They both were were using that Frasca simulator and um, all the benefits that they had found, everything from reducing hot starts to uh, the simulation of of, of various uh, situations. And, And I really wanted to take our training both in the medical and aviation. Uh, I'd already been doing it in the medical, but really wanted to take it towards scenario-based training and and really get away from task-type training. So we brought that in. It was a wonderful way before we invested uh, time into pilots. Um, This is not... Uh, this is just uh, the way it, the way it is. Uh, you bring a pilot in, and if you're going to run them through three weeks of training, you would like to know right up front if if uh, all their skills are intact and if their their logbook is reflective of true experience and whether they're going to going to work out or not. And mm. sometimes they find now that with the uh, rather than putting them all the way through school and then finding issues uh, in the aircraft. We can find out right up front by bringing them into the simulator, and sometimes they have the opportunity to just come before even uh, accepting a position to fly and and, uh, get a feel if they're not sure about EMS because we build in scenarios and that sort of thing here. It's been a wonderful tool for us, both from uh, either a pre-offer or a post-offer and or uh, incorporated into the training, both new hire and recurrent many scenario basis uh, training. It did in fact pay for itself in terms of reducing hot starts um, because the 206 does not have a um, modulated start or uh, or like uh, a FADAC as people would know it on like the 407 or other, other aircraft. Um, so there were a number of different things done. We then, um, as we were talking about how we could do, I said I, I wanted to get away from tabletop, if you will, um, uh, air medical crew resource management, a- AMRAM training, uh, really wanted to move it into, again, a scenario-based situation. And so having this completion, great completion facility we were just talking about, I had them take the uh, hull of an aircraft and actually uh, cut the front of it off and we actually can now roll it up and attach it. It is the rear seats and the stretcher that we now can attach to the back of our um, simulator. We can put a new pilot up in the front. We put a, a new medical crew in the back. They're in their flight suits and helmets. The medical crew uh, in the back has a patient. Uh, we have human patient simulators. Um, and in the next room are communicators who are also going through their training mm. So that we can have a totally new crew, and the, uh, the they will be called. They're in the room. They're called. They get in the the aircraft, so to speak, which is the simulator. Uh, they can have a patient situation going on uh, while while someone is 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 managing that. Uh, obviously, there's someone running the simulator, so that. Uh, a double IMC, uh, an inadvertent flight into uh, the clouds, could, could happen. Uh, there could be a chip light. Uh, m- many different things can happen there, or maybe it's a maybe it's a patient emergency that that uh, that they tell the pilot find the closest uh, the closest facility or land now. We've got a you know this patient is uh, um, we need to physically restrain further. You know whatever those emergencies are, 
rather than talking through them, we make them happen and they, we watch to see how they respond. So it's, it's a matter of assessing critical thinking skills, train, retrain, and then go back to reassess critical thinking skills. Um, so it's good because they communicate to the, the communicator. They'll, you know, go look at their GPS and find, you know, the next closest hospital. Maybe that's the request. Maybe it's just purely a, a place to land in a field. Um, we have scenarios where wires will show up and we're looking to make sure that the, the, the team in the back tells the, the pilots, the pilot knows the wires are there. He's told there are wires. I want you to fly towards those wires. He's told into his ICS uh, in the headset, but the crew in the back can't hear it. Wants to see if the people in back are really paying attention and they're going to tell him, call wires, call them the way they're supposed to uh, at 10 o'clock, you know, or whatever it may be. Um, so we've incorporated that scenario-based training, and I, I really, really feel um, very good about how that's working and uh, believe that it has, uh, uh, you, you know, we, we don't always know what we've prevented, but I have to believe that um, that that our, our teams are uh, communicating better and uh, are better prepared for these situations uh, as a result of this. And I still don't know uh, anybody else that's doing that yet, uh, but I, I certainly believe that through the recommendation of the NTSB towards scenario-based, and I think uh, um, our chief pilot, uh, Tony, who's now our DO, that, that was there for the uh, NTSB hearings last February, uh, was asked to speak uh, to that uh, training. In fact, uh, that the NTSB and FAA had been here uh, years before, and we're looking at our risk assessment tool, our pilots in the comm center, and this this type of uh, simulator training that we were doing, and ask a lot of questions. And um, was that believe the first, that was the impetus, possibly. Was that the first time um, that the clinical crew was involved in a simulator, and as were you alluding to scenario-based or clinical staff involved when you talked about uh, that you didn't know of anyone else? I mean else? the inclusion into the sim into the aviation simulator uh, with medical crew and yeah, pilots together. Because right. yeah. in my past, we've always done that as a tabletop, and you're given the scenario yes. and you you talk through it and that. But this is this is real hands-on. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's certainly uh, very good for the total team because then, you know, it's not just that the pilot might be running something, but you might have something going on in the back with a patient. So two different things at, at one time, and how do you handle that? Um, sure. And that, that kind of leads into uh, one of my uh, questions because I, I want to, you know, bring up some things that, you know, you hear in, in our community. And, and one of the other criticisms um, that you hear of AeroVac uh, has been that the clinical training for nurses and paramedics is not at the same level as the hospital-based programs. And obviously adding that is a, a dimension that a lot of clinical crew at any other program does not get. But um, tell us about the, the clinical training that the Arabic uh, team gets. Sure. We've... Uh... Anybody that's come through or or, or taken actually a look uh, that that really has taken a look uh, firsthand has become aware of our uh, academy that I think others have have asked and we've shared a lot of information about that in the past it was a three week academy which is uh, down to a two week uh, training academy where um, first of all you're bringing up really a comparison and certainly I have that comparison from having managed both the hospital-based at a medical center versus 
uh, now managing and being responsible for a, a clinical team, uh, ultimately responsible, I guess, anyway, for a clinical team that does not have the opportunity, at least firsthand, right where where we reside and where most of our bases are, to get the depth of clinical experience because they're at sending hospitals not receiving. And uh, from a training, you ask about the kind of compare and contrast maybe a little bit. The, uh, the training is, is composed of didactic in which we uh, uh, really made our, our advances, I believe, uh, to the next level when we incorporated the human patient simulators. Uh, we used the Medi simulators. Um, we, we have them both here in West Plains. We've got uh, um, 16 human patient simulators, uh, a, a pediatric and an adult right here in West Plains, and then the rest are at our, in our regions out in the field. Um, and they are used by our medical directors as well as uh, education staff for, again, scenario-based training. It's incorporated into the training here in terms of uh, intertwined with uh, didactic sort of classroom and then written tests are also the application of those uh, protocols to run run teams through protocols and observe their critical thinking skills and and the various challenges that they can be put in. If you've ever watched the Medi competition, those are the sorts of things mm-hmm. that we do with ours. Our education staff can do that with with our folks, uh, and that's by the way, that's the initial training, but it's also recurrent. Um, we take scenarios and protocol changes, and again, it uh, it is making the simulator do things without telling a person, well, now you're seeing this, or the blood pressure just dropped. I mean, it's happening, and you're making sure that they're monitoring the situation and that they're uh, responding appropriately according to protocols. And, and certainly from from a QI standpoint, we, we observe what are the, you know, we have high volume sorts of type patients and uh, we tweak and uh, uh, change protocols as needed. But as we change those sort of things and educate, we want to make sure that, that the education is working by, by uh, them doing return demonstrations and, and working through those scenarios. Our medical directors do work with individuals and teams um, with the simulators as well as just in the, uh, in, in the meeting and didactic uh, first of all, before they leave here, they are uh, reviewed by a medical director uh, with the simulators and a review of their tests, et cetera, um, and, and protocol questions. Many of our medical directors, although not all, and it's certainly their prerogative, also can um, will sit down and question and walk through things that, uh, that, that it's up to that person in that region and pretty much by state um, when, when, a, when a person leaves here and is going to come out and work in that area, uh, they'll walk them through their paces at whatever they want. That's, that's their prerogative out there. The ongoing then becomes quarterly meetings with their medical director, but that's in addition to 100% review of, of patient records and a, a clinical staff that, that does that and, and does a 100% QI of the records and then um, that's the feedback loop for the medical team members to assure that uh, that, that their care and that they're uh, providing care directly according to the protocols that are, are established and out there. Interestingly enough, we actually um, 
we, we had taken Texas Lifestar uh, as an example, and I guess I'll say by name because when we when we purchased them, uh, they had arrangements, and so did in fact so did Critical Air. Now that I think about it, had arrangements for clinical rotations at hospitals, and we we maintained those contracts and said, well, let's do some comparisons. And we found that the the quality of the education and learning was, um, in fact, not to the level that we desired uh, in, in terms of how the staff received those people and what true experience based on what happened on that shift and what they were able to get involved and and then having privileges at that hospital and you know are they really put in a situation to have to think and act on their own and perform protocols. And what we found was that was very difficult at best um, to, to assure a quality experience in the clinical setting at these hospitals as opposed to what we were able to do with them through uh, uh, training ourselves and then the use of a simulator to, to basically put them through their paces and observe them because we record them on film. Uh, and, and can can watch their reactions and, and see how that goes. So um, I, I feel very good about where we have matured in a process and how we have compensated for taking the team that is not at a medical center. We also document all of their, by the way, work experiences. Many of them uh, work at the local community hospitals and, and quite often will travel for experience also at the uh, urban settings, but most all of them live in the rural settings where our bases are. And so it's up to us to, to provide additional um, training. And that certainly is, is only after they meet qualifications for um, you know, the ACLS and, and PALS and uh, NRP and either BTLS or PHTLS, uh, those sort of things they have to have uh, before they ever come and they have to take a, a pretest before they will come into the company um, as a qualifier. So. And, I, and I know from visiting, you heavily rely on the SimMan training and you alluded to the MediCup. Uh, and I, actually, Airvac was the first American program to win that, right? Unseating the that's Canadians. That's correct. Thanks, yeah. thanks for remembering <laughs> yeah. that. Yes. Well, I was president at the time. That's why I know. Yeah. Sure did. We had a team from uh, from Arkansas, uh, yeah. the Jonesboro, Arkansas area, that uh, went and competed. Uh, it was the fourth medi competition at AMTC, and uh, yeah, we were pretty excited about that. Of course, now it's the University of Michigan's on a on a run. They're on a run. They are. Um, yes. Well, let me switch to the ownership uh, structure of, of Aravac. Uh, I know that uh, you are currently now a, a subsidiary of the Air Medical Group Holdings, um, which is a portfolio company of Rockway, Moran, and Partners, and Meridian Venture Partners. When did uh, you first take on the venture capital, and what has that meant for the company You know, as far as decision-making and and capital projects that you've had? Well, the acquisition took place, uh, the, the, two, the two partners that you mentioned um, purchased Arivac from the local owners, the gentleman who had, had seen it through for, for 20 years, uh, mm-hmm. basically uh, in J- uh, July of 2004. So we're talking five and a half years ago. Uh, that acquisition took place. And I think the real benefit uh, for us, I, I would mention several things. And, and let me first say that 
I, I was I was not sure at the time. I've told that to our employees. I meet with the new employees every month as they come in, and, and I address that issue up front because I, I know it's a question, and I just as soon try and deal with it right up front because they're not sure either what to think. Um, uh, I, I can tell you that from the time of that acquisition and their uh, spooling up in the knowledge of this business. Uh, Aravac was the only company at that point in time, um, and, and it w- they, they only created the Air Medical Group Holdings after they did some other acquisitions uh, that did not roll into Aravac. Um, Medtrans Corporation, which has a different model and uh, is managed separately, and then more recently just purchased Eagle Med, uh, uh, the, the Medtrans was formerly uh, headquartered up in Bismarck, North Dakota, not Medtrans that some people might know of as the ground service, but rather it was a rotorcraft. And, and then Eagle Med uh, just purchased this past year based out of Wichita, headquartered in Wichita, Kansas, which mm-hmm. is fixed wing and, and rotorcraft, uh, um, A-Stars and, and uh, King Airs. So those are the two other companies that are part of Air Medical Group Holdings. Uh, certainly, one of the real benefits was the access to additional capital. Um, I was, as I had said early on in this, as we were talking, uh, I was very focused on a standardization process here, and uh, certainly as as I wanted to change things. And at that time, we were in uh, the mid-30s for bases and close to 40 helicopters. When when you want to change, and I say I want them all the same. Uh, yeah, as you could imagine, uh, the dollars can add up quickly. Uh, certainly, no, they do now when we're over 100 aircraft. But uh, back then, based on uh, the, the the amount of capital available, um, that that presented challenges under our, our existing ownership. Uh, having the change to this ownership allowed us to go to Wall Street to get our ratings for Moody's and Standards and Poor. Uh, who just by the way you uh, you mentioned the southwest you brought that up and in fact um, at uh, Moody's uh, the one gentleman uh, said you know you're kind of like the southwest <laughs> of uh, of helicopters with a Walmart basing mentality <laughs> so <laughs> i said well i think that fits fairly well that's that's fair but but access to capital was certainly uh, something that uh, was the was was big the other thing that people ask about is, well, if these folks are investing and we're a portfolio of theirs, um, you know, if, if they've got investors and they've got to pay their investors, um, how's this how's this work if they're taking the profits? I had some uh, staff ask when I always have some wide open time to ask questions, and they said, well, how would we ever do these things if they're taking our profits? I said, well, they're not taking our profits. They own us, and you think about – I said, you have to view it as though – you're holding stock in something, and you can almost view them as holding stock in us, but also being able to invest, of which all of the excess revenue over expense that we make goes back into capital plus more capital. And I think the benefit, I know the benefit for us is as they as they came to understand um, this uh, community or industry. What what they realized was the value of the company would would uh, would be gauged on the safety and the quality of the quality of patient care and the safety uh, record of the company, 
and therefore have been willing to invest in these things. Uh, many of many of the things we're talking about, as I've gone to them with um, putting a pilot in our communication center, why we did that long before there was ever a recommendation in doing risk assessment, um, buying a simulator uh, of 206 type, which nobody else has done, and um, in fact, we bought four more. We've got them out in the field. Our pilots do their every six-month double IMC recovery training because we bought four more and put them in the field so the pilots don't have to travel back here on a six-month basis. Um, helmets and Nomex for the entire fleet. Night vision goggles we we talked about. So they're willing to spend that capital um, to, to do those things uh, that directly they can see correlate to a quality improvement process and, and safety. And for that, we're fortunate that our goals are aligned because they they understand the value of the company will go up as those things are put in place and as you um, take a leadership position in, in those sorts of things and gain that experience, and we all benefit from that. So uh, I, I, that's what I would tell you is the most most notable um, changes that we've seen is the access to capital and their willingness to to invest and and be able to borrow uh, or take their own uh, equity and and uh, invest it. And certainly, the going for CAMES accreditation was part of that because that was a I'm sure a very large expense given how vast um, the organization is. So uh, that yeah, had to, that had to be on the table too. And since I'm talking about CAMES. Um, I think you've, you have to be the largest provider to ob- obtain accreditation. Am I correct on that? Uh, I'll, I'll qualify my statement. The largest that I am aware of prior to to us or even since then was, was a Canadian uh, operator that had uh, 15 bases, and they were roughly half and half uh, rotorcraft and fixed wing. Um, other, other, while there's other larger companies, obviously, that have portions of their company accredited. Uh, there was no other large company um, great with greater than 15, anyway, bases or aircraft that had ever gone through company-wide accreditation. And I still don't believe anybody has. At the time that I submitted our, our PIF, uh, we had 64 bases. That was in um, the end of uh, 06 going into 07. And we had our, we had our first uh, site visit in 07, where uh, a large group uh, came to West Plains and and went through everything here and then dispersed, uh, uh, nine of them dispersed across and did uh, 100% uh, base site visits uh, simultaneously. Since then, as any time that we add bases, you know, we we report the changes and any ads and changes uh, as, as anyone would. And then they too uh, go out and and do visits. Uh, they've elected through our growth process, um, and it's their prerogative to do so. That they they now do unannounced site visits to new bases. Uh, we, we continually make them aware of any place any changes that in new bases. So. Uh, when we set out to do this, uh, I, I certainly have both. Uh, um, air medical program background and hospital background. And as I said to many of the medical folks who I think have the highest level of scrutiny in the Kings uh, review process, um, that we can't do this the way many hospitals do 
joint commission. We, we can't be scrambling for 90 days before surveyors show up and make changes. I mean, in fact, making changes right before makes no sense. Um, we need to live, we, we need to set our things in place, live them every day, and then it shouldn't matter. And that's why I tell people, um, so surprise surveyors show up and, uh, you know, we'll get a call some morning that someone's shown up at the base and handed their badge and a letter saying, you know, this is this is a tight survey. And I said, well, I, I don't have uh, any trepidation over that or concern because I know how we operate and live in our centralized processes here in West Plains and out to the base level and by a regional level. Um, I know they work. Um, we were cited for numerous uh, positive uh, best practices um, when they came. And so it is a major investment. It's something that I wanted our own folks to feel proud of um, uh, themselves, that we, we could do this. And um, it's, um, it's been an interesting process. And uh, Kames has had, to, has had to change some of the way they, they did things to be able to accommodate something of, of this size and scope. So we worked together, and um, I, think, I think it worked out. Yeah, I think you've answered my question and certainly some of the, you know, things that you hear in the community is how how could they do that and did they really visit every base? And you're saying that every base was visited as part of uh, the accreditation process. That's correct. And and still today, 100% uh, mm-hmm. visits. And I, I think what's really helping you, as you said, is really that standardization so that really when they're going in a surprise visit, it's no surprise to you because it's the same standards that you have at each of the bases. That, that was the comments back that uh-huh. um, when, when, when the surveyors came uh, to West Plains and spent two days, uh, nine surveyors fanning out into various aspects, as you can imagine, but um, I kept walking through the fact that the, the beauty is to have the same medical protocols, the same QI uh, even though we have 14 medical directors, they all sit down and hash out changes and, and, and come to consensus, by the way, which, uh, as, as you can imagine, is uh, interesting. Uh, I've had folks say quite often, oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. I said, well, it's kind of fun sitting at the table, too, <laughs> to listen to them. But they, they hash it out. They bring their data. They they argue and debate. But the good thing is they all leave. Um, and i got to believe that our protocols are scrutinized to a, a, a pretty high level with trauma surgeons, ER physicians, you know, pediatric specialists, OB, you get a whole wide variety of mix in that room and they all have their opinions, but uh, we'll walk out with, uh, you know, changes, changes only get through a consensus process. So um, that QI, that, uh, the, the, that standard operating procedure and the, the, everything being the same, the server <laughs> at our exit interview said, you know, you talked about standardization, but we didn't realize one of the things when we all met, you know, was, wow, you really meant standard because we like to go to the base. It's like, you know, the, the policy books are in the same place. You go into the aircraft. It really has worked for us um, mm-hmm. and, and been a real positive, uh, real positive thing. I'm, I, I really attribute the success in that process to being that standardization. I'm not sure it would have worked very well otherwise. Well, you've uh, I've asked a number of tough questions, but I've probably saved my uh, two toughest because you know when we agreed to do this, I said I, you know, had some some difficult questions for you. Sure. What uh, 
the, the next one is more, uh, and you talked about the other companies that are part of the Air Medical Group Holdings. And one of the things, at least that I've heard when I was you know, preparing for this interview, is that uh, Medtrans, who mainly works with you know, hospital-based, or they have a number of different models, but they'll come in and can take over a, uh, a hospital-based program you know, for the hospital. Uh, but they're, that they're using Aravac to leverage against the hospital-based provider. Uh, and in other words, hey, you know, let us come in and then we'll call off Aravac uh, to expand into your area. Is there truth to that or what's your response? I have, I've heard that as well. Uh, you're saying you've heard that out on the street, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, have heard that. Obviously, I'm here, and I will tell you that that we don't do that. We don't expend resources um, in opposition to each other because we are, as you can imagine, uh, um, part of the same holding company. Just like with Eagle Med, where we have uh, overlapping service areas, um, it doesn't serve well for me. I'm not going to add resource. I mean, you're you're asking the question, and if you think about it from my standpoint and uh, take away uh, MedTrans for just a second, think about the existing overlap that we have with with an Eagle Med who has a dedicated customer base just as we do and we overlap in Oklahoma, for example. And as I look at expansion plans, I would not go in unless there was, uh, obviously, we're going to place assets wherever we believe that uh, people are wanting them and where uh, uh, the need exists. So whether it's MedTrans with a hospital-based program um, or Eagle Med, um, we're we're not a deal maker on 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 that. Um, I, I I believe I, I mean I don't know what else to tell you about that other than that's that's not the way to do business. Okay. The the. Uh... Well, I, I wanted to talk about some future stuff, but um, one of the things, I know you were under an FBI investigation uh, from 2007. I believe that ended in 2009. Why was Aravac investigated, and, and what exactly were the findings? Well, the, the, the true answer of why is still not, not known because uh, there, was the, there was a search warrant issued. Um, I happened to be here, and... Uh, Colin, I was VP of operations at that point in time in 2007 when they when the the FBI arrived here. Colin was boarding a plane in Memphis, and uh, uh, basically had a they had a search warrant. But any of the reasoning behind or or any of their information that that led to that was under seal, and so we've not been privy um, to that. But I can tell you that uh, probably the best way to tell you is based on the depth and breadth of of their investigation and the data. First, just so that you know, um, you know, I I will tell you that I've, with with being in healthcare for over 30 years and and Air Medical 28 plus uh, years, I've been to conferences and listened to panels talk about, uh, you know, if the the OIG or FBI or that comes, how how those things uh, Mm -hmm. go down. And I guess... People, I've certainly had enough people ask me about it, just curious, um, wanting to know about it. And they certainly, um, in, in this case, came 
in uh, full force with uh, um, it was reported as upwards of 50 um, agents that came and we have seven buildings here in West Plains and they simultaneously unannounced arrived in the morning at each building um, everyone was removed from buildings there was no pre-notification it is on the spot and you evacuate the premises and at that point in time uh, for the remainder of that day they they go off to office, they, uh, they uh, copy hard drives, they copy your system, uh, email system, uh, all files. Uh, they go through file cabinets and pull anything of interest, so to speak. And, and uh, so, so that's the initial uh, search warrant and, uh, and taking of, of documents of whatever it is, and then only uh, later at some point, can you get a, a list or whatever of what it is they've taken? Otherwise, you come back in and just try and figure what what's gone. So it's a. Pretty, are they making uh, copies, Seth, or are they actually taking? No, they're taking. They, they, they it's their choice. Uh, in fact, I know of others. It didn't happen. Well, it did happen to a certain extent with in our patient accounts. Uh, those were brought out in in boxes and two wheelers. Uh, I know of other places uh, in the past where actually the computers and file cabinets were literally just put onto two wheelers and taken. Hmm. Um, computers were not taken, but they did mirror every every hard drive and every piece of data. What I would share with you in terms of um, the areas of interest, uh, uh, first of all, was uh, membership. And it, it became apparent that there was a lack of understanding that uh, waiver of copay uh, and deductibles when someone is a member uh, has a safe harbor since the late 90s um, from the OIG if your membership program is actuarially sound. And by that, I mean that you collect more member fees than you waive in your copays and deductibles. Uh, so... There was a thorough review of our uh, uh, actuarial uh, studies of which we, by the way, have an accounting firm do every year. So we have records of all that and have been doing them. Um, so that that was pretty easy right out of the right out of the the, the bat, right out of the chute uh, to lay that out. Um, the uh, the other piece was uh, there, there's a, a number of them. Probably doesn't surprise anybody because it's kind of down the OIG sort of trail, medical necessity and billing. Uh, there was uh, uh, medical records that were um, audited or re-reviewed by third their third party choosing. Um, there was also a review. Um, and it came from questions. Uh, uh, well, well, let me let me tell you, there were uh, over a hundred thousand documents that were reviewed. Four dozen employees were individually one-on-one -on -one interviewed. Uh, there were interviews with um, customers of ours who let us know after they had had an interview, or competitors of which some of which um, made it known that they um, spoke to them as well. Um, and certainly a third party, uh, there was a third party involved in a medical necessity review of our, of our charts. There was review of, um, of the clinical and billing documentation. You know, you kind of follow the medical necessity through and you take the pa our patient record. You look at the ambulance records or sending hospital records before that. 
you look at our documentation, and then you look at the hospital, receiving hospital documents, all of which were pulled in an effort to assure that there's no what some people would consider upcoding. Uh, in other words, um, there's questions like, uh, do you, you know, is anything ever taught? And they, they go back through all your literature, and that was part of also interviewing folks about um, how is documentation taught. In other words, you've probably heard of EMS companies who have taught people to up, you know, use the terminology that changes the course of, and that's why they, that's why they pulled ambulance records and compared them to our documents and compared them then to the receiving hospital documents to see if everything jived and, and that there was no, uh, no pattern or differences. And uh, that, that was 100% uh, cleared. They also looked at relationships and refer with referral sources, um, you would know that to be uh, enticement or inducement of referrals, uh, everything from are there any kinds of gifts, are there contracts, are mm -hmm. there, uh, you know, all of that um, line of review, which involved going out also um, many years, five, six years of uh, detailed financial records of which you can see where every check was written, every every company or individual who ever had uh, any expenses or, you know, I mean, all that's reviewed in an effort to um, look for things as I can only assume that there were accusations or others out there who have, have brought that sort of thing up that they're looking for. Um, and then obviously our compliance program, education, um, and, and did we have a, you know, that, that's a normal part of a review like this is, is a compliance. So after, uh, after all of these uh, really a very active two years, um, we kept saying, you know, look, we'll, we'll cooperate. You have all our stuff. What, what are you looking for? I mean, uh, who do you need access to? What do you... And, and basically saying, we want to be done with this. We, we feel very confident that, um, you know, our owners, like I said, five and a half years ago when they bought us, one of the very first things they did was bring in folks from uh, Alston and Bird and, uh, you know, folks in healthcare compliance and to do audits, reviews, look over all of that because for them, before they're going to invest in a platform company, and if, you know, certainly as they knew, they didn't have other healthcare holdings, but were advised, you know, that's the sort of thing you need to do. So we, we felt quite confident. I certainly did that, um, that what we were doing was right. And, you know, talk's cheap. Um, I say that a little tongue in cheek that people can believe they, you know, they, they've heard something or this or that. And, uh, I don't doubt that that's the sort of thing that led up to a belief that something was going on. Um, and so they came, they looked, uh, spent, I just can't tell you the number of hours and time invested in the review of all of that to, uh, to find that the medical necessity review was, uh, and, and, you know, by the way, we've had those, I think you've probably had them in your past as well, where, where there are audits done. Um, and we've had those in each of the different areas, many of the areas where we have carriers and, uh, federal government that pull and do an audit and do a review. Um, they did a more substantial one, obviously, on on this one, and it uh, came out extremely clean. Um, so, 
all said and done after two and a half years, well, two, yeah, right at about two years, I guess, well, almost two and a half, was uh, no fines, no penalties, no findings, um, either criminal or civil, which, um, interestingly enough, I, I learned some lessons through this uh, legal process as well that uh, we're fortunate to have a letter that indicates that there were no findings and thanking the company for the cooperation. And the only way that we were able to receive a letter, rather than them just stopping the investigation and walking away, which is quite common, is because they did it in a what's called a public way. In other words, they came and served a search warrant, which became very public, even though all their reasons for doing it were sealed. Um, and, and continue to be sealed because they issued search warrant and did it in a public way. They then, um, according to the, the, the legal system, give us something in writing that, that concludes it. So we have that. Um, that was announced last uh, fall, I think, right around the 1st of, of October. We're, we're glad to have that behind us. Um, feel comfortable and confident. Uh, I was very frustrated in that uh, the question constantly came up and it's absolutely fair I, in fact i'd have been disappointed if you wouldn't have brought it up because it was frustrating for two and a half years yeah. for the in the implication to be that well of course if you're under investigation by the fbi you're you're uh, almost assumed guilty until proven innocent and what i'm happy to tell you is is after all of that um, it's almost unheard of to have to have the fbi come do search warrant like that and then come away with absolutely no no fines, uh, either civil and, and, well, no criminal findings, certainly, and then absolutely nothing either on the civil side. So, Well, I, I appreciate being so candid about everything. I know that was unbelievable ordeal over that two years, because certainly it, it is, you know, it's, you whisper, you know, the whispers go around, well, certainly there must sure. have been something wrong, and I'm glad that... Uh, you were cleared and did, and did the, get the, the letter too. To get the letter, um, I, I knew though that the uh, the headlines and the <laughs> the blogs and that would be nowhere as extensive uh, once once we did a press release uh, indicating that it was over. And nothing like uh, when it happens, and that we, I understand that I'm not naive enough. I knew that would be the case, but um, glad glad to be through it. Um, um, a real education in the process, though. So yeah, you've probably got the best education of anybody in our community on that. Yeah, I don't think I <laughs> not don't one really that wish you want that on anybody, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but it's well, behind us now. So. Well, I've got one more question because uh, I know we've been on quite a, a long time, but there, there's so many different things, and we could talk, I'm sure, for another couple hours. But uh, I just wanted to see what you see for the the future, you know, with all the healthcare reform going on, um, how do you think that might change how air medical services are delivered in, in the United States and what plans are airbag making? Well, um, won't shock you or probably anybody else that we continue to have some, some growth plan in our future. Um, we all need to be responsible for where we place aircraft, um, looking for better access. I, it's so hard to say what the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this from two different perspectives. One, you're asking, what do I think on the healthcare reform? And I, 
I certainly hope to see better coverage out there, but I'm not sure. I'm a bit of a skeptic, uh, maybe, uh, that I'm not sure we're really reforming. What I think we're doing is taking tax dollars to probably cover more people under the same system and rules predominantly that we've had before. But it remains to be seen. Um, we certainly are all watching that um, to see where it goes. I think if you ask me what do I see in the future, maybe more related to air medical, um, I certainly would take you back, and I know you've had to have seen that uh, that, that article in JAMA from uh, June of 05. Uh, granted, that's a little dated, but at least back then, uh, which it didn't really come out until uh, about a year later or was more notable, that that 42 million people in the United States still don't have access to a level one or level two trauma center within an hour. And that's what the existing air and ground systems that we have right now. I think we talked earlier about declining service uh, healthcare providers, especially, I got to tell you, in rural environments, we're seeing a decline in the services available. Um, rural health clinics having a tough go of it. Mm. Um, hospitals, uh, the hospital right here. Um, Colvin talked about in 1985 it being hand and mouth, and I, I, I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's hand and mouth now, uh, too, and it's tough. It's uh, very tough for in, in the rural environment. So I don't see a growth of services. In fact, we've got more people, more baby boomers moving to rural areas and yet have an expectation that they're going to have access like they had around an urban area. Now, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I'm not here to solve that problem, but I we are offering a solution to that in terms of there's still better access to be had around the country. Um, quite often, uh, you know, I once, once I think I looked at the, the hospital-based model versus the community-based model and having been a part when I was treasurer of, of Ames um, back for the tail end of the negotiated rulemaking, believing that that was going to have a pretty dramatic impact on hospital-sponsored um, hospital programs because of the way hospital programs built. Um, I did it myself at University of Florida, went from a 206 to a Dolphin, and it all went on the cost report. and. It raised my reimbursement. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that was the rules that, that were laid out for us. But the fee schedule kind of changed that. And so if you've got a lot of overhead and high costs and then the fee schedule comes out, it's a little bit different now. And it's not a core business for many hospitals. But I, my belief is that somewhere in the neighborhood of 25% of the programs in the country, when we, when we see this through over the next maybe, let's say, five years, maybe less, will remain as a hospital-based type program. They're going to want that and continue to keep doing it. And that they certainly, you know, the, the, there are those that want to do that, and it's their absolute right and prerogative to do so um, in whatever integrated healthcare process they're going to do. And I think about 75% will be um, a community-based um, type um so you provider. see a further shift because I think right now it, it I think the balance just tipped just recently it was mainly kind of fifty fifty I think yeah. it's now gone I think tipping a little towards the CBM side mm -hmm. uh, just past the fifty mark but right. yeah it's probably not worth splitting hairs but I think it's just past it I believe in five years this is just purely my prediction you ask so I uh, 
I'm gonna hold you to it so. for a minute. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm I'm guessing it to be in the in the kind of the 75 25 75 community based to 25. That that's your guess. Uh-huh. Well, I, I I think uh, you know I had uh, Lou Lombardo on the the last episode and all his work with the advanced crash notification systems yeah. and the importance of having access. Uh, to care because you can have the advanced crash notification, but if there's no services around, what does that help? I mean, at least it, right. you know, notif- that notification is so important in a, in a rural area. Right. Well, I know, uh, I, again, appreciate all the time uh, that you've uh, put toward this. I know you're quite busy and I uh, thank uh, um, Colin for, his time. I know he couldn't uh, get back on today with some, some family issues, but uh, really appreciate you answering all the tough questions uh, that I had and, and spending uh, a good amount of time with me and the, and the audience. And I do wish you a happy 25th. When's the exact day that you're celebrating? That will be this, uh, this, the, the, the very end of July of this year will be the, the actual date of the 20, 25th uh, mm. anniversary. So we'll we'll do quite a celebration. We do a, a homecoming. We've been doing that since uh, 2002. Since the end of 2002, we do a homecoming every fall and invite folks, uh, all of our folks back in and have patients, uh, former patients come and talk. It kind of grounds us back to the reason that we exist uh, and um, so we'll we'll have a little extra special celebration this year uh, uh, with 25 years. And we're actually uh, putting together, we have a historical committee that's uh, gathering memorabilia. I've been working on that for a year and a half, and uh, that's about to come to fruition uh, through some uh, displays in each of our buildings. And we're, we're hoping to do a virtual museum online uh, before long, oh. kind of from the, the early days, which is uh, going to be kind of fun. So... Will that Looking be open to, to the? That. Will that be on the web page, open to the public? Yes. Oh, yes. Great. We're hoping that'll that'll probably take. Uh, it'll probably be mid year around that time that we we can get that up and running. They're working on all the physical components of uh, of our historical museum and and historical pieces that they've been gathering for some time and displaying them, and then they're going to kind of do a virtual so that it can literally be electronically shared as well. So that's great. Yeah, because I. Uh you know, follow with the Air Medical Today. It's not just the podcast, but uh, news and information. So I'm constantly pushing out information for those following that uh, they can get that. So I'll be watching for that one. Well, thanks Great. again, Seth, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Ed. Hope everything goes well with your father as well. So Thank you very much. Yep. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast, and I know this was a long one, but I hope you found it very informative. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com and also on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the site. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song Track 5 for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please keep the citizens of Haiti in your thoughts and prayers after the very terrible and devastating earthquake this week. 
Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.